This is episode 90 of the Kol Hadash podcast, originally recorded during the virtual Shabbat on April 17th, 2020. Zion. Technically, it is a place, a mountain in the hills 40 miles east of the Mediterranean coastline. Today, Mount Zion is technically outside of the walls of the old city, not the Temple Mount with the Western Wall and the Dome of the Rock. Zion is not the Mount of Olives in East Jerusalem with its historic Jewish cemetery. It is not the Kinneret, the sea of which Ellen sang in the north. It is not Mount Herzl in West Jerusalem, which houses the Israeli Knesset and the National Military Cemetery. But Zion is more than a place. Sion, Zion, was an idea. It was an ideal, a vision for centuries when almost all Jews would end their Passover with Lashana Haba'ah Bayerushalayim next year in Jerusalem. But even though they said it, they didn't really expect to be there. Zion was the happy ending after the Messiah. It was the perfect place, the utopia, safe and unchangeable. Now we know that in the real world, ideals have limits. Sometimes those in pursuit of an ideal of a utopia will go to any excess to make them happen because anything is justified in the pursuit of a perfect world. Reality sometimes suffers by comparison to the ideal. Even if your reality turns out pretty good, it's not perfect like the utopia you imagined. And we know that one person's heaven can be another person's hell. After all, these days of quarantine, we find out that the introverted homebodies are getting along much better than the outward-directed extroverts. Today, Zionism, as an ideology, is a litmus test in many settings. For the most politically progressive, Zionism is a kind of disqualifying particularism. It's a kind of colonialism. It's ethnocentrism. It's even racism. For the most Zionist zealous, having a Zionism defines minimal credibility. And there are arguments in terms of, are you Zionist enough? Are you the right kind of Zionist? Are you pro-Israel using what I mean by pro-Israel? The biggest challenge to discussing Zionism today is that there really is no agreement on what Zionism is. It's no wonder, after all, there's many definitions of what counts as a patriotic American also. It isn't only defined by the number of flags outside of your house. Maybe if Zionism was a movement to establish a Jewish state, the Jewish state has been established. It's over. We've been post-Zionist since 1948. Or maybe Zionism could mean supporting the continued existence of a Jewish state. And so the concept of Zionism is still relevant. Zionism could be the expectation that all Jews who desire uh, that all Jews who desire the long-term survival and thriving of the Jewish people must move to and live in Israel. That's one definition of Zionism. A Zionism could demand as much territory as possible, or it could accept a divided land. Zionism could prioritize democracy over national ethnic identity. Or Zionism could prioritize national and ethnic identity over basic human rights. Tonight, we are at the Shabbat leading into two weeks of Israeli national observances, Yom HaShoah, Holocaust, Memorial Day, 
Yom HaZikaron, Israeli Memorial Day for its soldiers, and then very next morning, Yom HaAtzma'ut, Israeli Independence Day. And I thought it'd be worth exploring as we lead into these two weeks of Israeli national celebration, what is Zionism? And perhaps to explore it so that you might answer the question if called upon to answer, are you a Zionist? Now, who was the first Zionist? It was not David Ben-Gurion, who was the state of Israel's first prime minister. It was not Theodore Herzl, who founded the World Zionist Congress in 1897. It was not Moses Hess, who wrote a, a pre-Zionist book, Rome and Jerusalem, in 1862. It was not even Shabtai Zvi, the mystical messiah from the mid-17th century, whose followers were inspired that he was the messiah and would bring them home to the homeland. They prepared to be returned to Israel on the back of angels' wings. What I would nominate as the first Zionist is uh, someone else. The author of Psalm 137. This psalm was written after the Jerusalem temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BCE. And Jews were taken into exile. They were living in uh, Babylon. Uh, and in this poem, you'll see their captors mock them. And then they ask a very hard question. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yes, we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows in that land, we hung up our harps. For there, those who led us captive asked us for song. Those who tormented us demanded songs of joy. Sing us one of the songs of Zion. Here's the question. How can we sing Yahweh's song, the Hebrew God's song, in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I don't remember you, if I don't prefer Jerusalem above my chief joy. This is a longing for return, a sense of exile where the homeland is somewhere else, and a desire to return that even goes to extremes. If you read the later verses of this particular psalm, you'll see a very violent revenge, hoping that God himself will take and destroy the children of one's enemies. It's definitely looking for payback. But this idea of hoping for, longing for, wishing for a return to the land of Israel pervades traditional rabbinic Orthodox uh, Judaism. For example, this blessing from the fourth cup of wine as part of the traditional Haggadah. It really articulates a feeling of exile. You bless God not only for the wine and the fruit of the vine, but also for the good and spacious land which you gave our ancestors to inherit, to eat of its fruit and be satisfied. Have compassion upon Israel and upon Jerusalem, your city, and upon Zion, upon Zion, the residence of your glory, and upon your altar and your temple. Rebuild Jerusalem, the holy city, in our days and bring us back up into it. And let us be joyful in its building and eat of its fruit, enjoy its bounty, and praise you for its holiness. And so at the end, blessed are you for the land and for the fruit of the vine. This is longing for a return. And this is not particularly an example of a diaspora. You see, when you're in exile, you're not where you belong. You want to go back. If you're in diaspora, if you think of the meaning of the word diaspora, it means a spreading of seeds. 
dia spreading out like a diagram, spore are seeds. A diaspora is a spreading of seeds that take root wherever they land and become part of the native soil in which they are rooted. A diaspora is a much more organic imagery than an exile. The exile looks to return. A diaspora may thrive in different soil and different settings. Now, modern Zionism was very different from the historical Jewish longing for return. It was a break with the past because 20th century Zionists were no longer waiting for a Messiah to bring them back to the land of Israel. They decided to go themselves. One of the early Zionist movements in the 1880s took its inspiration from a passage in Isaiah that said, Beit Yaakov lechu nelcha, house of Jacob, let's get up and go. They wanted to just get up and go and not wait for deliverance. They were not looking in this new state they were trying to build to give power to religious authorities. Most of the early Zionists were largely secular and they were more interested in creating new Jewish culture in modern Hebrew than traditional rabbinic Judaism. There's a very efficient formula for this that the Zionist historian Ben Halpern wrote. He said, the intellectual substance of Zionism is the rejection of exile. It was not the acceptance of exile. That was traditional rabbinic Judaism saying we're punished for our sins, we wait for the Messiah. They accepted the exile. There was also a denial of exile. That was 19th century reform Judaism who said, we are not in exile. We can make our temple here in Hamburg and Cincinnati. Zionism was a rejection, not acceptance and not denial. And so you do not stay where you do not belong. If you reject exile, you go home. And you also reject the worldview of exile, the Judaism of exile, the language of exile. Zionism talked about being the new Jew who refused to be the victim, who fights back, who makes history, who stands up straight and proud, who speaks his or her ancestral language, who lives a free Judaism of creative culture, connection to the land and modern ideas. One of the initiatives of the Zionist movement in 1932 was the founding of the Maccabi Games, which are sometimes called the Jewish Olympics, reflecting this ideology of the new Jew who is strong and upright and proud and athletic. There's an irony, of course, that if you read anything about the Maccabees themselves, one of their major provocations that led to the Maccabean revolt was the building of a gymnasium for Greek athletics in Jerusalem. And so the fact that the Jewish Olympics are called the Maccabi Games would have made the Maccabees themselves really upset. But it's one of those ironies of history. The mission of the modern Maccabees, of the Zionists, was not only to take the Jew out of exile, but also to take the exile out of the Jew. They would say to build the land and to be built by the land, to change yourself by the work you were doing. There were four basic goals of Zionism, no, no matter which Zionist party you belonged to, if you were labor Zionist, revisionist Zionist, religious Zionist, it didn't matter. You agree with these four visions. The first goal was that there should be a Jewish refuge, a place for Jews who are being persecuted and suffering to go for safety. And in the early years of the Zionist movement, there was a debate over whether that could be anywhere. Herzl actually received a proposal from the British Foreign Office to possibly create this Jewish refuge in British East Africa, what is today Uganda. And he brought this proposal to the World Zionist Congress in 1903, and they almost tore his head off. What do you mean? 
Uganda. We are not Ugandists. We are Zionists, and it's Zion or bust, Israel or bust, the historic ancestral land of our people, Jerusalem or bust. And so Uganda was out. But the whole idea of having a Jewish refuge was a core vision and goal of the Zionist movement. The second goal was to have Jewish sovereignty, to actually have a state that reflected the nation, the ethnic nation of the Jewish people. Remember, this is starting in the late 1800s, early 1900s, when a lot of ethnic nations are looking for freedom. Ukrainians and Poles and um, Slavic nations, Serbia, uh, Croatia, and so on. Remember, World War I has started by a Serbian nationalist who's upset at the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, and so this idea of ethnic nationalism is in the air. In fact, in January 1918, Woodrow Wilson, in outlining his plans for peace at the upcoming peace conferences that he envisions at the end of World War I, described 14 points for peace. And one of them, most important in fact, was the principle of national self-determination. That distinct peoples had the right to choose their own form of government and determine their own collective destiny. He talks explicitly about Poland becoming independent again. He talked uh, about colonies having the right to have a say in who would rule them and not just the colonial European powers. The idea was that if Jews had sovereignty, if they had their own state, they could make their own choices for what would be the future and fate of their nation. And getting back to that idea of refuge, the doors would always be open. One of the real traumas of the Holocaust era experience were all these Jews who were trying to flee Europe and could find nowhere to go. You remember the story of the boat, the St. Louis, that made it to Latin America and to North America and was turned away and was turned away and finally had to go back to Europe. And most of the passengers on that boat were ultimately killed. And so having Jewish sovereignty means the doors would always be open if you have your own state. A third major goal was that a Jewish state would be the venue and the sponsor of Jewish cultural expression. You would have a place in the world where everything would close on your holidays and not on someone else's holidays. And you wouldn't have to take time off of work to observe your new year or your day of atonement or your winter festival. The calendar would be around Jewish holidays. The language would be a Jewish language as the national language that you would use on street signs and in government interactions and ordering a cab would all be in a Jewish language. And it would also be the venue for popular music and plays and movies and TV comedy shows and, and everything that a national cultural identity wants to express could be done if you have a state to help support it and to provide an audience for it. And finally, one of the major goals of Zionism was having a Jewish majority place to have the Jews not a minority. Some of you were part of our adult ed class on Tuesday that pointed out that in Israel, about three quarters of the population is Jewish, 80% or so, six out of eight million, uh, six and a half out of eight million are Jewish. And about 95% of those Jews report that almost all of their friends are Jewish. In America, there are 320 million people, only about six and a half million of those are Jewish. And only about a third of Jews report that almost all of their friends are Jewish and about 55% uh, report that they have a Jewish spouse, those that are married and the balance do not, uh, whereas in Israel 95% are in married to Jews as well. There was a demographic goal of preserving Jews by having a Jewish majority like that, 
but the goal was also for safety in numbers. Jews had lived as minorities for a long time. That was the whole experience of exile. 2,000 years of being a minority, living at the forbearance of others. And even if you were a sizable minority in Poland before World War II, the Jews were 10% of the population. But even that wasn't safe enough. But there was also a feeling that if we had enough Jews in one place, you would have a sense of Jewish self-confidence, Jewish normalcy. Ben-Gurion said, I'm glad that we have Jewish criminals and Jewish prostitutes. I remember my first trip to Israel, I saw a bus driver wearing a kippah, a uh, religious head covering, and I thought, hmm, that's new. <laughs> that's new to me. I was once in Israel over Hanukkah season, and it was amazing to find nothing in red and nothing in green and no Christmas carols and no trees and no Santa anywhere. If there was anything, you saw blue and stars and menorahs on street poles, on public spaces. That was the cultural context. And that only happens when that's the majority experience. I've heard similar experiences, by the way, from African-Americans who travel to Africa and realize that everyone around them looks like them and is like them to some extent. And that's an eye-opening experience for a permanent minority. Democracy was an ultimate goal, but the, the Zionist movement didn't trust democracy if Jews weren't the majority. And if they were enough of a majority, they could ensure a Jewish character to the state. All of the major varieties of Zionism accepted those four goals, a refuge, sovereignty, cultural expressions, and having a Jewish majority. And you could support those goals without even moving there. Now, some Zionists did believe that rejection of exile meant that every Jew needed to live in the land. In fact, they even today refer to Israel as Haaretz, the land, as opposed to one of the countries. Everything else is Chutz Haaretz, outside of the land. But there are plenty of American, Argentinian, Australian Zionists who have supported those goals, but never moved there. And they were buried in Galut, in exile, or in diaspora. Uh, they did Israeli folk dancing, they learned Hebrew, they sang songs like Bashana Haba'ah, which we sing as well. They supported the Jewish state financially, emotionally, politically, just as Irish Americans have supported Ireland and Mexican Americans go to parades on Cinco de Mayo and send money home to support their families too. The challenge with Zionism today is that the world and history has moved in different directions. Ethnic self-determination has been complicated by concern for democratic values, human rights, and minority experiences. For Jews, it's wonderful to have a flag with a Jewish star on it. But what does that mean for the 20% of the Israeli population that is not Jewish to have a Jewish star on the flag? Imagine if the American national anthem referred to a Christian heart just as Hatikva sings of a Jewish heart, longing for Zion. If that were the American anthem, would you stand? Would you sing? Today, we've learned to listen to both sides of a conflict. Visit a plantation house in the South, and you'll hear stories not only of the big house and the master, but also of the slave experience. Most importantly, the, the divide we have today between right, left, and far left is even bigger than ever. For right-wing nationalists, their major goal, what's most important to them, is security and advantages for their group, for their nation. And so for the right wing of Zionism, Zionism means as much territory as possible, as many rights and security as possible for the Jewish population and its cultures, and the minorities that are there will just have to live with it. They'll have to understand their place. Now for left-wing patriots, who are Zionists as well, 
For them, national values and human rights are just as important as security. And so for that left wing that is still Zionist, Zionism for them means building the best possible Jewish state, including human rights and minority rights. And either they envision dividing the territory to create a Palestinian state so they can actualize their national self-determination and thus also ensure the Jewish majority in what's left, or else perhaps to allow both ethnic cultures to find a way to be expressed in one state, like a Belgium or a Switzerland that have multiple national groups in one political entity. And then there's the even leftier leftists, the internationalists. They question the whole idea of nation states and borders to begin with. I mean, even those who would call for open borders in America, which is not a particularly ethnically defined state, even more so an ethnically defined state that privileges or penalizes particular groups. For those people, Zionism is an ethnic nationalism that privileges one group at the expense of another. Having a Jewish right of return and automatic citizenship is not fair to everybody. And they simply feel that any kind of Zionism is incompatible with democratic values. Now, I believe that you can remove the exile mentality without having to leave diaspora. I don't have any plans to move to Israel at any point in the future. You can have Jewish pride. You can have engagement with surrounding cultures and people. You can have self-confidence. You can have Jewish groups willing to stand up for themselves and to stand up for other peoples who are going through similar experiences to our own. If anything, our experience of exclusion should teach sensitivity to the exclusion of others. Perhaps having an actual Israel has helped Jewish self-assertiveness, but as an early Zionist thinker named Mechad Ha'am predicted, Israel can be a cultural and inspirational center without having every Jew in the world move and live there. Now, are you a Zionist? That's something you'll have to decide for yourselves. Am I a Zionist? I root on Israel from a distance, and I poke it with a stick to encourage it to do better. I find that supportive feedback is an important way to show love and support. I visit Israel every couple of years, supporting our Israeli partners who are training secular rabbis there. I'm conversant in Hebrew without ever having lived there longer than a month long summer program when I was in graduate school. So if I had to pick a label for myself, I might say that I'm Zionist-ish. You'll accept that compromise. I had to think about this question more deeply recently because the World Zionist Congress every few years has an election. And this last election, they had one slate uh, representing American Jews that reflected a lot of my values. They had many slates running to represent American Jews, but one slate in particular really spoke to me because it turns out I had either been a member of or uh, donated money to half of the organizations that made up the slate. So I said, well, I think I need to support this slate. Now, the challenge in voting for the World Zionist Congress is you have to give them a certain amount of money to help pay for the election. That's always been the case. But the other thing you have to do is you have to be willing to sign on to what they call the Jerusalem Program. And so I'm going to share the text of that with you, because for the World Zionist Organization, at least, um, this was what defines Zionists for them. If you couldn't sign on to this program, you couldn't vote. So here is the Jerusalem Program. First, the unity of the Jewish people, its bond to its historic homeland, Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, and the centrality of the state of Israel and Jerusalem, its capital, in the life of the nation. Aliyah, immigration to Israel from all countries, 
and the effective integration of all immigrants into Israeli society. Strengthening Israel as a Jewish, Zionist, and democratic state, and shaping it as an exemplary society with unique moral and spiritual character, marked by mutual respect for the multifaceted Jewish people rooted in the vision of the prophets. Ensuring the future and the distinctiveness of the Jewish people by furthering Jewish, Hebrew, and Zionist education, fostering spiritual and cultural values and teaching Hebrew as the national language. Nurturing mutual Jewish responsibility, defending the rights of Jews as individuals and as a nation, representing the national Zionist interests of the Jewish people, and struggling against all manifestations of anti-Semitism. And finally, settling the country as an expression of practical Zionism. Now, in the classic tradition of Jewish commentary and debate, I could go back through every single one of these platform items and, and have quibbles with it. After all, uh, is Israel set and Jerusalem central to my life as part of the ethnic nation? Not every day, not every moment. Does Aliyah to Israel mean that everyone should move from all countries, or does it mean that all countries are a possible source of people who choose to move? I certainly support strengthening Israel as a democratic state. Does it have to be unique and perfect? Well, I'm not so sure that's ever attainable. And settling the country is a particularly challenging one because when you hear the word settle, you think of settlers and settlements and the West Bank. Although those early kibbutzim might have called themselves settling the land too. And defining what the country is could be a political concept. In the end, I decided I could sign it. But it was something I had to think about because words have meaning and uh, labels have meaning too. Did I agree with every possible interpretation of every clause? No. But was there enough in there to support my perspective? Yes. And in the broad spectrum of Zionist possibilities, I saw myself represented. And so I did sign, I did vote. I do feel part of that broader family. In the end, what is Zionism? What is Zion? It's an idea more than a place. And the idea and the inspiration is sometimes even more than the reality. And so I'll conclude with a short poem by the uh, Israeli poet Shaul Chernikovsky. They say there is a country, a land that flows with sunlight. Where is that country? Where is that sunlight? They say there is a country where seven pillars are. There blooms on every hilltop seven wandering stars. A land where is fulfilled all a man can hope. Everyone who enters, Akiba, does approach. Shalom to you, Akiba. Peace be with you, Rabbi. Where are they, the holy? Where are the Maccabee? Answers him, Akiba, says to him, the Rabbi, All Israel is holy. You are the Maccabee.